This is the Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Elman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live the first and third Friday of each month. This week, Bard MBA's Kirsty Dabbs speaks with writer Elizabeth Segrin. Thank you, Elizabeth, for joining us this morning on the Impact Report. Sure. Happy to be here. Wonderful. It's a pleasure to have you. And I would love for you to just briefly hear why uh, Kirsty was interested in speaking with you today. Sure. Yes, so I was really excited to come upon your writing. Um, You write about so many topics um, that I'm interested in. I have a fashion design background and worked in the industry at the beginning of my career. Um, I've since moved into the performing arts, um, but I my interest in sustainability stemmed from witnessing the wasteful practices of our linear economy, particularly in fashion. So I'm excited to talk to you about that today. That's so exciting. Um, I'm so glad that you you saw that waste and wanted to do something about it. I think that not a lot of people have that experience. Let's open it up. Um, you are an accomplished author and a journalist. You cover a wide range of subjects but many of your articles have shed light on the fashion industry's contribution to climate change. Tell us a bit about your background and what inspired you to begin writing about this subject. Yeah, that's, that's actually a pretty interesting story. I actually, before I became a journalist, I actually got a PhD in classical Indian love poetry from Berkeley. <laughs> um, and you know, my, my original goal was to become a professor, um, but then I discovered um, that, you know, my real love was, was writing and, and was thinking about a lot of different ideas. Um, and, and as you, you're probably aware, in academia, you have kind of a very narrow focus, um, and you're thinking about a very narrow set of, of topics. And I found journalism and, and writing, um, you know, for other, in other ways to be, um, a little bit better suited to, to my interests. So for the past, six years, I have been um, a senior staff writer at Fast Company Magazine, which is a a business magazine that that focuses on progressive businesses trying to change the world. And and most recently, I am the author of a brand new book that has just come out called The Rocket Years, How Your 20s Launched the Rest of Your Life. And this book is really about the big decisions that we make when we're young, when we're in our 20s and how those decisions play out over the course of our lives. And uh, in the book, I look at all kinds of decisions from career to to love, to family, um, to other things that I think a lot of us aren't thinking that much about in our 20s. So things like, you know, friendships and how our friends come and go um, and things like, um, you know, our, our passion projects. And also activism um, and our, um, you know, in our investment in, in larger, um, you know, social missions. And um, 
you know, in the book, um, you know, I make the case that our 20s are this really valuable and important time because we discover a lot of, you know, the, the things that, um, that we're passionate about and our great ambitions and passions in life. And that can actually propel us in the decades to come, you know, to sort of find a mission um, and, and find a purpose that, that directs us for the rest of our life. And so I think that um, actually in a lot of ways, the, the, the work that I, that I did for this book is actually extremely relevant to the, the conversation that we're having right now, because I think that right now it's, it's young people like yourself that are aware of, of the incredible destruction that the fashion industry is, is having on the planet and the, the decisions that you make and the, you know, the activism that you do and the way that you think about trying to you know, build a career that, um, you know, centers around trying to solve some of these problems could have a really big impact, um, you know, in your own life, you know, pursuing something that you feel passionate about, but also, you know, collectively, if young people are involved in, in being part of the solution here, I think, you know, I have a lot of hope that we can, we can change uh, this industry, which is, which is causing so much destruction to the planet. Mm, absolutely. Well, congratulations on the publication of your book. And that reminds me that so many of us in our, our 20s uh, feel anxiety about the path ahead and not knowing mm -hmm. with certainty. But as you said, if, if we find a social mission that inspires us, um, that can propel us forward and really provide opportunities for change. Yeah, and especially at this moment, you know, in my book, I talk a lot about how our 20s are a moment of great chaos and transformation. And I think a lot of people see those things as, as negative. And I think that there's a way that we can harness moments of chaos to teach us about ourselves and about what we value and, you know, what we really want to accomplish in life. And I think more broadly, we're in this moment of great chaos right now, um, just, just for everybody, regardless of how old you are. You know, we're finding that um, the patterns of our life are undergoing your transformation. I mean, from everything, you know, from, you know, how we're spending our money, what we're buying, to, to, you know, many people are losing their jobs and are forced to think about, you know, what the next step is going to be. And so, um, you know, I don't, I don't really like the idea of finding a silver lining in the middle of something that's so terrible. So I, I'm not going to frame it like that. But I, I think that one way that we can try and make ourselves feel a little bit less disempowered and a little bit more empowered in this moment is to try and see what we can learn from this moment of chaos about um, you know, about ourselves and about what we want and about what we value, because eventually we're going to come out of this. And I think that those learnings can be very valuable. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. You have you have a good optimistic view, and I I found that many of your articles, even if they um, report on some devastating um, environmental news, they, they often end on a high note. Um, but what, as you dug into the subject of um, fashion industries, environmental footprint, what were some discoveries that jumped out to you that made you want to write about them? For me, I, I was really surprised when I came to the subject um, about exactly how 
much we are over consuming in the world of fashion. Um, you know, there are only um, you know, slightly less than 8 billion humans on this planet, but um, a lot of the data suggests that we're making about 100 billion articles of clothing for 8 billion people, which is just enormous, right? It's, it's far mm. more clothes than, than we really need. And if you think about how those clothes are spread out around the world, you know, there are many places where people are very poor and they don't own that many clothes. And so the vast majority of the clothes being manufactured are going to wealthy countries like the United States. Um, so I, I was just really astounded by how many clothes are being made. And, and cumulatively, when you think about how much um, how many resources and how much goes into making every single garment, you know, out there, um, including the $5 shirt that you get from H&M, you know, it really adds up to an enormous cost in terms of using natural resources like um, cotton, wool, and, and oil that goes into the, the plastic clothes, you know, the synthetic clothes that we wear, like polyester and nylon. Um, it, there's a, a massive impact on on the climate because a lot of carbon is involved in manufacturing these clothes, and and then you know we we these clothes are made at such low cost that we go into a store or we go online and we fill our carts with tons of clothes that look fashionable right now, um, but that we essentially treat as disposable. So in a few in a few months, maybe a few years all of those clothes will end up in the trash. Um, you know, they'll be probably donated or, you know, passed on to someone else and then eventually end up in the trash. Um, and so there's just so, so much waste in this industry. And it's really, it's really awful. And I think before we, we move, you know, in order for us to move past this period, we need to really address and curb this overconsumption. Absolutely. And um, I think one of your pieces referred to the discrepancy between the population growth rate and that of the fashion industry. Um, can you speak a little bit about that, please? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, there are, there are a couple of things that, are, that, that contribute to this, um, to this overconsumption. I think the big, you know, the big one that I think everybody is familiar with is the rise of fast fashion. So before, um, you know, fast fashion became the norm, it actually, you know, it, it, making clothes was not a, a cheap or um, easy process, right? Um, you know, a, a lot of manufacturing was happening uh, locally in the United States. Um, you know, th there wasn't this global infrastructure devoted to making clothes as cheaply as possible. But over the last, I'd say, um, 30 to 40 years, um, there's been this big shift. There's this big global shift towards making clothes as cheaply as possible. And so, um, you know, we, we see we see companies like H&M and Zara, you know, manufacturing clothes very quickly and at very low cost uh, using, um, you know, inexpensive labor in, in countries like uh, China and, and Bangladesh and you know, other countries where labor costs are low and using very inexpensive materials um, like um, essentially synthetics, right? Um, instead of, of durable, high quality materials like, like wool and cotton. And, um, 
you know, companies like Zara and H&M basically kickstarted this trend, but it's really um, now companies across the board that have had to manufacture clothes in the same way to keep to, to be able to c compete, basically. So, you know, when you go to Target, you know, when you go to Old Navy, when you go to um, Forever 21, when you go to a lot of, you know, mall brands, they're all essentially operating on this fast fashion model. And so, so that's the first part of the problem, right? Um, that, that basically fast fashion created a new way of interacting with clothes that made clothes pretty much disposable. That's one part of the problem. The second part is that companies um, basically are measured by how quickly they can grow. You know, um, mm -hmm. companies um, often have investors and those investors want to see constant growth of these companies. And so, you know, the fashion industry is growing at a rate of about three to 4% a year. Um, and what does that mean? That means that in order for a, a fashion brand to continue growing, they either need to sell clothes to more customers, or they need to sell that same customer more clothes. Um, either way, um, what that means is that the number of clothes that, that that's produced in this already, you know, ridiculously, um, um, you know, large industry uh, is growing um, at, you know, at this rate of three to 4%. If you're, if you're talking about a billion articles, a hundred billion articles of clothing, you know, that is, that's a huge number um, that, that's being added to that every year. Um, and if you think about how, you know, the human, you know, population is only growing at a rate of about 1%, we can see a little bit why, um, you know, we, we, can, we can sort of have a sense of why we've gotten to this point of such massive overconsumption. At Bird, we think a lot about how to continue sustaining the population and employing individuals and living in a healthy, um, positive way while decoupling from the growth of, say, um, Wall Street and um, quarterly reporting and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, so in your writing, you highlight the interconnectivity of systems. You mentioned how irresponsible supply chains uh, create social and environmental damage. You mentioned how trend forecasters perpetuate increasing levels of consumption. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you hope to inspire systemic change through your work? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting point because, um, you know, there are sustainability reporters like myself um, who are talking about the environmental impact. And then, you know, over, you know, many years, there has, there has been, um, you know, a body of reporters who have been consistently um, writing about the, the human rights abuses that, um, that happen in the fashion industry. Um, and I think it's so clear now that those two things are, are connected. Um, and I think that, um, we're, you know, I think the average person now is beginning to see the link between those two things. And I think that that's so important. But, but essentially, you know, when, you, when you're talking about fast fashion, you know, everything about fast fashion was about trying to make clothes as inexpensive as possible. And as, and as I mentioned earlier, this means using low quality materials um, and, you know, the lowest, you know, the, the cheapest materials on the market right now are synthetic materials, um, which are just really inexpensive. Um, 
to make, um, but also just really bad for the environment because they're essentially made of plastic, which does not decompose. Um, and then, you know, even even organic materials like um, cotton, um, the, the cheapest way to make it is to is to use lots of chemicals um, that, you know, allows it to, to, to ensure that the, the crop uh, grows quickly and and that, you know, pests and, and, and other, um, you know, and other forms of destruction uh, don't don't destroy the crop. Um, so, so there's a lot of, um, you know, environmental destruction that happens um, when, when we're using such inexpensive materials. But, uh, you know, on the other side of that, you know, we're also using very, very inexpensive labor in order to keep those costs low. And there are so many ways that these two things are intertwined. I've written a lot about how cotton farmers in um, in many parts of the world, um, you know, particularly the places like Africa and Bangladesh, uh, sorry, places like India and Bangladesh, um, are responsible for much of the global cotton production, um, and they, you know, they're they're exposing themselves to so many chemicals um, in order to to grow their cotton. And these chemicals are incredibly toxic. A lot of the time, um, the the chemicals end up in the groundwater, and um, and poison entire villages, right? And so that's one human cost we see along the chain. Um, in order to get uh, these inexpensive materials, um, the um, you know there's there's a lot of slavery around the world, right? Um, it's it's slightly different from the slavery that that we read about in our history textbooks, but you know there are many ways that um, you know that that ruthless uh, companies. Um, essentially, you know, uh, don't pay their workers adequately. Sometimes they don't pay them at all um, in order to uh, produce cotton, um, you know, and, and then and then there's the factory part to consider. Um, we know that the conditions in factories in many parts of the world um, are really, really terrible. Um, but because people are so desperate in those countries for work, they'll they'll you know be willing to work under really awful conditions and for very very low wages, and all of that for what? All of that so that we can get you know a five dollar shirt at H and M that we're not going to wear many times, right? Um, it's it's just a, a horrible system um, where both the earth and human beings are exploited um, for something that's that's relatively frivolous, right? I mean th these are you know. It's so that we can stay, um, you know, on trend for a season um, at a price that, that is, you know, is, is good for our wallet. Um, it's really horrible. Um, and so anyway, in terms of, you know, what I'm trying to do um, in my work, um, you know, I think that on the one hand, I'm trying to speak to consumers um, who read my stories. I think that a lot of the time, um, you know, we, we participate in the system, um, you know, the, the buying products you know, from fashion brands that advertise to us on Instagram. And, you know, we might have an inkling in our mind about the fact that, you know, some brands are not that ethical. But I think a lot of people really struggle to understand exactly, you know, where the points are in the supply chain where these abuses happen. Um, in fact, I myself didn't really know that much about this. You know, I came to this entire industry um, over the last couple of years. As I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I, I wasn't, you know, trained in fashion, and I came to fashion journalism a little bit later. And so I've had to learn about all of this, and I've been shocked myself. And so I think that 
just educating consumers about what is going on and you know where the you know abuses are happening and and how they can call out brands for their bad practices and you know and potentially you know it's, it's, my job is also about finding companies that are doing things slightly better um, so that consumers can can spend their money um, or use what I call uh, you know wallet activism to 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 you know spend money on companies that are doing things right and essentially you know vote with their dollars by not spending money on companies that are not behaving um, ethically um, and and that I think can have an impact on the market right because I think you know investors and companies are are seeing what the trends are in terms of where consumers are spending their money and could adjust their behavior to respond to how consumers are thinking. So, so that's one area that I'm trying to, um, you know, to shed light on it and, and hopefully help change things. But on the other hand, you know, I'm also speaking to the brands themselves because I think, um, you know, there's a lot that can be done. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of CEOs and, and founders who want to do things more ethically, but feel constrained um, in various ways. And I think that, um, you know, showing them, you know, uh, business models that are working, that, that are ethical and that are also working can be very inspiring. And, and most recently, I've been thinking a lot about um, regulation, you know, finding ways for governments and, um, you know, sort of um, larger organizations to essentially create policies um, that will help regulate uh, the fashion industry. And I think that that could also be a really important way to move things forward. Yeah, that's a really exciting concept that I um, would love to hear more about. Um, you wrote earlier this year about regulating the global fashion sector the way the oil industry is, uh, given that fashion is responsible for about 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Talk us through the case for regulation in the industry and what signs you've seen that make you believe it's possible. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. I think this is a really important topic um, and one that I, I don't think has been wrestled with enough. But um, you know, part of the reason that the fashion industry has not been regulated, I think, um, until now, you know, even now it's, it's still largely unregulated. But but part of the reason for that is that the the fashion supply chain is really spread out. You know, there are so many parts of the supply chain and there's so many um, middlemen, you know, throughout the process. So there, there are brands um, and those brands work with factories. Sometimes those brands don't even fully know what the conditions in those factories are like because they sometimes work with these, these middlemen that help them source product, right? So, so that's one, one part of the supply chain. Those, supplier, uh, those suppliers, those factories, buy raw materials and, and fabrics from, you know, from mills. Um, and, you know, there's a middleman there too that's sort of um, basically, you know, um, helping them source fabric from mills. And then those mills are buying raw materials like, you know, like the, the raw cotton, wool, um, synthetic fibers. Um, you know, from from other suppliers around the world, and so at every stage in this process, there's um, there's a lot of you know, a disconnect, right? And there, there's also a lot of 
problems and um, you know ethical and environmental um, destruction that happens at every part of the process. Now, when it comes to regulation, it's really hard to um, regulate a supply chain that is so spread out because um, you know there are so many people who are responsible, right? Um, and 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 as a re and sometimes you know if, if even if you want to regulate. Uh, you know, starting with the brand. So basically asking the brand to be responsible for all of the environmental impact that it has throughout its supply chain, that brand just may not know. You know, it may not have access to information about what's happening lower down in the supply chain. Um, so this is actually a very complex issue. Um, and it's just, it's, it's hard, right? Compared to say the oil and gas sector where, I mean, that's also kind of a complicated process, but it's possible to go to say, you know, an automotive ma maker, right? Like a, a maker of cars and say, you know, you need to now impose, like in install a filter um, in, in your cars, or you need to make your, um, your cars, you know, higher efficiency. Um, it's possible to do that with, a, with an automaker. It's much harder to do that with a fashion brand. Um, so, so that's kind of the, the, the issue here. And also, I think that part of it is that, um, you know, I think for a long time, people just simply were not aware of exactly how big the impact the fashion, you know, the fashion industry had on the environment, whereas it was, it was easier to track things like emissions, um, you know, in, 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 with cars or, you know, or, or how much emissions were being created uh, through incineration or through, you know, and through, you know, other forms of like energy generation. Um, with fashion, I think that, you know, it's taken a long time for people to start measuring the impact of this. And even today, we don't have very good measurements. We know that the, the industry is creating a lot of waste. We're not exactly sure how much. Um, and so, so all of these are the, the sort of hurdles that we're dealing with. Um, but on the, on the other hand, we're, we're beginning to see glimmers of how um, we might be able to regulate this. So one example comes from France, where you know, France has a, a, minist a ministry of the environment, of environmental protection and sustainability. And there is a minister in that, um, in that department of the government um, that has been uh, focused on um, on trying to find ways to regulate the fashion industry in France. Her name is Brune Poisson. Um, and and her, her title, just to be clear, is not the, the Minister of Fashion. That's not her official title. But we've seen how she's been working to try and regulate the fashion industry. So one thing that she's done is she has forbid French brands from destroying inventory, which is a very common practice. So if, if a company has made too many of a particular style, um, at, the, at the end of the season, if those products have not been purchased, um, many brands either sell them at very low cost, and if they're unable to do that, they, they'll just, if they're unable to sell that merchandise, they'll burn it. And there are some luxury brands that just uh, don't even try and sell th those products at low cost because they're worried that it will dilute their brand. So then they just burn those products, um, you know, as soon you know as soon as the season ends. Um, that's obviously terrible for the environment, um, and it means that all of the the cost of you know the environmental cost of making that product immediately just gets gets thrown out and and, and burnt, right? Um, and so she's saying that brands brands themselves are now responsible. Um, for ensuring that those products do not get destroyed, which means that those brands then have to be 
a lot more strategic and thoughtful, you know, um, so they have to think a lot more carefully about making sure that they don't overproduce in the first place, because then they won't have to deal with this excess, you know, of this excess production. So that, that's, that's good. Um, yeah, and, and, and many brands are now finding creative ways to, to think about, you know, what to do with these products. Um, you know, some of them are just are, are, are using the materials from them to make new products for the next season, which, which is, a, is a positive thing because they're not, you know, having to get raw materials. Um, you know, other brands, um, I know Hermes in France is, uh, is actually, you know, taking some of the material that they would have thrown out and, and creating, you know, entirely new products, um, you know, like that are that are unrelated to the bags that it makes. You know, I, I went and visited the Hermes factory recently and they're taking materials that would have been thrown out and turning them into things like paperweights and, um, you know, and like beer, <laughs> beer cozies and interesting things like that. It's actually spurring creativity. So, so mm -hmm. here's an example where one country has decided to regulate one part of the fashion industry and it's actually beginning to have a ripple effect, right? It's, it's, it's spurring creativity and it's, it's curbing waste in interesting ways. I wonder what would happen if more countries um, decided to, to do similar things, regulating various parts of their businesses. Um, another thing that she's done is she has asked uh, for all um, washing machine manufacturers to install a filter in them because one new thing that has come out of scientific research is that when we wash garments that are made of synthetic materials like polyester and nylon, little tiny pieces of uh, plastic called microplastic end up in our waterways where fish consume them. Um, and it's really bad for the fish for the fish that are consuming them, but it's also really bad for humans because we eat those fish and therefore, you know, we're basically consuming plastic now in our in our food, which is um, showing it's, it's you know there's some research that shows that that's really bad for our livers um, and it's actually affecting our health so that's an example of where she's basically you know identifying where the, this minister between Poisson is is like identifying a problem and has found a way to um, to create sort of a policy that could you know could have an impact on um, on how much microplastics end up in our waterways. Um, so, so those are some really great examples. And I think that, you know, if more countries decided to do things like this, it, it could have a pretty significant in, impact. Yes, absolutely it can. And um, all of those examples just further illustrate the, the interconnectivity of this whole ecosystem, the fashion system with our environment and how we are actually um, victims um, mm -hmm. in the case of microplastics and air pollution. Um, so regulations sound like a great way to um, affect change. How about from the other end? Um, there's been a lot of divestment from the oil and gas sector. Is divestment a way that investors could change the fashion industry? Um, that's an interesting question. I think that um, I think that there are, I think that, you know, that's, that's definitely one strategy, but I do think that perhaps a, a better strategy would be for investors to basically change their expectations of fashion brands and, um, you know, sort of adjust their metrics 
for measuring the success of a company. So, you know, as, as we mentioned earlier, the fashion industry um, is in this state of overproduction. And this is largely because the, the business, um, you know, of fashion is, is premised on growth. Um, I wonder what would happen if investors had entirely different metrics, right? Um, if, if the metrics were really about like the durability of product or how, um, how loyal customers were to a brand um, because they were able to sort of have these longer term relationships with brands um, by, you know, by, by creating these more circular models where you might buy an article of clothing um, and then, you know, after wearing it for a couple of years, you would send it back to be recycled and turned into new garments. Um, if there were these, you know, other interesting models that we could have and investors basically held brands to account for how, you know, innovative they were in creating these new models and, and, in, and in holding on to consumers um, through this, you know, through all of this innovation, I think that um, that, that would be a really great uh, way to move the industry forward. For sure. And I look forward to your reporting on any innovative models that um, get suggested in the coming months and years. Um, mm -hmm. So as we, as we are recording this interview today in early April 2020, we are seeing the world battling the threat of coronavirus and um, how the world made drastic changes to business as usual to mitigate the effects of the virus. What impacts, negative and positive, do you think this crisis will have on the fashion industry? Um, I think it's. I think we're in this really fascinating period. Um, and to go back to what I was saying right at the beginning, I think it's forcing us to really reckon with what matters to us. And I think that one way that we're seeing that is in, in terms of our shopping habits. You know, we're in this moment where um, the economy uh, appears to be on a, on a very steep uh, cliff. Um, uh, it's, you know, and there's a lot of fashion brands that I report about have seen massive, massive declines in sales. I think we're beginning to see, you know, what products in our life are essential and, and what aren't, right? We're, we're being a lot more cautious with our spending. Um, you know, we are basically uh, focused on essential products at this point. Uh, there, there are entire sectors of the economy that have shut down like retail, um, while, you know, sectors like, you know, gross, the grocery industry and, um, you know, other essential services are, are still up and running. I think it's pointing out to us, just, just, just this new reality is pointing out to us what, you know, what is really necessary to keep society going and what are, you know, sort of less important products, right? So I think that that's, that's, that's one finding that, that we have right now. And um, in terms of, you know, fashion specifically, I think that brands that are um, creating sort of durable uh, products, um, you know, are, are, um, tend to be doing a little bit better, I think, than, than brands that are sort of creating like fashion items that are sort of designed to be disposable. You know, I think that that's, that's quite an interesting thing that's happening right now that, that essentially consumers are now turning their focus to, you know, investing in products that they really need and that will last them a long time. Um, whereas things that are sort of frivolous, that are sort of fashion items that are designed 
to, to, to sort of not be relevant anymore since we're not going out um, and since we're trying to save our money, you know, those companies don't seem to be doing quite as well. Um, so, so that's one one thing. And I think that overall, you know, consumer spending in the fashion sector has been sort of dramatically going down because I think that, you know, we're realizing that, you know, that fashion and, and having so many, um, you know, clothes that are in season um, is just not something that is that necessary. I wonder if, you know, that's actually not a terrible thing. I, I feel very badly for, for brands that are suffering through this economic downturn uh, because they're losing a lot of revenue and having to lay off employees. I certainly don't think that that's a good thing. But I do think that if this is showing us what we can learn about um, our consumption habits, that, you know, that, you know, in the future, that this might actually be a good thing um, because it, it will it will help consumers basically um, focus on, you know, buying products that are, are essential and that are long lasting and durable. Um, and this might force brands to also change the way that they produce products, right? And, um, and, 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 and it, it may actually put an end to the cycle of fast fashion that has dominated the way that we shop for the past 30 years. Um, so I think that that's maybe, you know, one good thing that, that might come out of it. Um, but in general, I think that, um, you know, you know, we've, as I've said over and over in this podcast, like overconsumption is the real issue here and our consumption habits are changing. And so I think we have this, this kind of window, um, you know, as a society to perhaps turn the tide here of overconsumption and, and focus on, you know, investing in brands um, that are not contributing to overconsumption, right? And, and perhaps to change, and for other brands to change their business models so that they focus on creating more durable products. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I think it's just worth mentioning on the back of that, that um, so many thousands of people around the world uh, at the beginning of the supply chain are relying on this um, growth and these massive production models um, and that somehow we need to consider how they will be affected um, if we in the West change our habits. And um, there's definitely a trickle down that could have consequences um, for those yeah. people's livelihoods. So. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's, um, that's absolutely true. Um, but at the same time, I think that, you know, businesses in the United States, um, there have been, you know, a couple of businesses that have been transitioning a little bit towards um, creating products that are more durable um, and using better materials. Um, and those these these companies are are still profitable um, and they're still hiring workers. Um, they're just creating slightly different products, um, and they're they're also paying their workers a little bit more than than we've been used to seeing in these in the fast fashion sector. Um, so I think that it's definitely possible for companies to continue hiring workers around the world. Um, but to but to sort of change you know essentially the products that they're making right that by by creating sort of more classic 
um, looks that are not, you know, that are not designed to be to be worn for just a season, but for for decades. Um, using better materials, um, and then just you know using um, better manufacturing practices. I mean, you know, if you if you look at the average fast fashion company in in, in a, that's manufacturing in Bangladesh, I mean, workers have. Uh, you know, have to have these ridiculous quotas where they're making uh, an absurd number of clothes per hour. And that's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really backbreaking, horrible work. Uh, but it's also producing very low quality garments. Um, if if workers in these factories were, were given an entirely different type of product to make, one that requires much more careful, um, you know, attention to detail, um, because that garment was designed to be last, was designed to last a longer period of time. Um, you know, I think that it, it wouldn't necessarily need to result in um, in a change in in a, in, a, in a significant change in you know hiring workers. It would just require a different type of of product and, and manufacturing system. Um, so that's my hope. Thank you for sharing that that way that we can change our our current system. That's a good solution. Um, what do you see as the biggest sustainability challenge we have to take on during 2020? Yeah, I mean, this is a it's a it's a difficult year for us. Uh, there's so much that's that's in transformation and in progress right now, and it's unclear what the future is going to hold. Um, but my concern is that you know. I've been talking about how our consumption habits are changing and how, you know, fashion businesses are going through some sort of transformation. Um, I, I'm concerned, and that could actually be be a good thing for the environment. But I'm concerned that, you know, even it, even though that's happening, um, and even though I think, you know, predictions are that our overall, um, you know, uh, carbon um, impact this year is going to be lower because people aren't traveling as much and people aren't driving as much. Um, my concern is that a lot of the larger projects um, that were being undertaken uh, to, to essentially like transform the, um, you know, uh, the economy in, in bigger ways, right? Like investing in different types of sustainable technologies, um, investing in different types of materials in the fashion industry that are that were more sustainable. I, I'm concerned that these larger, longer term projects that require a lot of investment and um, you know a longer lead time to sort of produce. I'm concerned that a lot of that is going to be put on hold because everybody is in crisis mode right now. Um, and so, so that to me is a concern. What do you see as the biggest challenge in your day-to-day -day work in sustainability? For me right now as a journalist, um, the thing that's really a little bit frustrating is that, um, you know, sustainability is continuing to be, you know, an, an important issue and it's, a, it's a, an important long-term problem for us to solve. Um, but right now, the entire world's focus is on the coronavirus, and that is completely understandable. Um, I think that that's a very understandable thing. But um, I, it's a little bit frustrating to me that, you know, I haven't been able to continue reporting on um, a lot of the sustainability issues that I cared about before. Um, you know, Earth Day is around the corner and, um, you know, typically I, I write about, um, you know, the big exciting developments that are happening in the world of sustainability. And I don't think that 
um, this year is an appropriate time for us to be, to be talking about that because I think we need to just kind of focus on, you know, how we can get through this this immediate crisis um, as as a society. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a little bit sad that a lot of that reporting, um, and I also think a lot of that work um, has been put on hold. Um, but I believe that we're going to get through this, and um, and when that happens, um, it's going to be just as important as ever for us to continue thinking about issues of sustainability. And so I'm looking forward to, to that moment. As am I. Uh, well, I really look forward to seeing what you uh, publish when you get back into your groove. Mm -hmm. um, I appreciate that you have been writing about ways to um, deal with the COVID crisis um, through masks and through highlighting what fashion companies are doing. Um, I think that's a very relevant um, way to keep the conversation going. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for reading my work. I really appreciate you. You're keeping me in business. See more of Elizabeth's work by visiting elizabethsegren.com. Join us for the next episode of the Impact Report on Friday, May 15th. We'll be speaking with Don Wiviet, Director of Tomorrow's Farm. For the complete lineup and other news, visit us at impactreportpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Sustainability is one of a select few graduate programs globally that fully integrates sustainability into a core business curriculum. Learn more at bard.edu/mba.